morning. Good morning. What a thank you, Dale, for leading us in communion. It really is a, a special privilege we have as believers to rehearse and remember what Christ has done for us. Amen? Well, our text for uh, the sermon today is Matthew chapter 8. Uh, verses 23 through 27. So if you'd like to open to that spot in your, in your Bibles or turn them on and scroll to that place. <laughs> Let's read it together before we uh, commence our, our study. Beginning in verse 23. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him and said, Save us, Lord, for we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? Pray with me. Fathers, we come before you this morning. We come before you and your word. And Lord, I pray that you would, at this very moment, open our hearts and our minds, our spirits, to the teaching here, Father, that you have for us. Father, I pray that uh, at this very moment, Lord, that you would put whatever words you would have me say into my mouth and that we would see what you have us to see, Lord. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we come to this section of Scripture in Matthew, I thought it would be helpful for us to kind of rehearse where we came from through Matthew because this is a very special section of Matthew we need to understand how it fits into the overall context of where we've been and where we're going. So remember we talked about in the beginning of our study that the book of Matthew was written primarily to the Jews and the purpose of writing to the Jews was to declare and prove the Messiahship of Jesus to Israel. You see, they did not believe that. So Matthew wrote this gospel to them for that specific purpose. Beginning in chapter 1, with the genealogy, Matthew outlines his descending directly from the line of David, which we know from Scripture was a requirement for the Messiah, to be a direct descendant of King David. And that's why that geography, the genealogy is presented. Later, we hear of the birth narrative. The host of heaven opens up and proclaims the birth of the Christ child. What a momentous event that should have been. You know, if we could have witnessed that, wow. Again, proclaiming the Messiah. The host of heaven, the adoration of the wise men. And then as we learn later, when he comes back from Egypt, after hiding and being protected from Herod, the prophecy was fulfilled out of Egypt, I called my son. 
As we move into chapter 3, we have the baptism of Jesus. This is where he's actually initiated into his formal ministry, his time of ministry on the earth. When John the Baptist sees him come down to the river, he's walking down the banks of the Jordan River, what does he say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, for a Jewish person to hear those words would be a huge impact. They knew what that term meant, the Lamb of God. Right? Every year on the Day of Atonement, they would select a lamb without blemish. The high priest would take the blood of that lamb and sprinkle it on the altar to cover the sins of Israel for one year. But John here says, behold the Lamb of God, not to cover the sins of the world, but to take away the sins of the world. Huge announcement, very impactful to a Jewish audience. And then as he proceeds with the baptism, again, the heavens open and the voice of God is heard. Behold, this is my son. And the Holy Spirit takes on a physical form and, and descends upon the person of Jesus, giving him power and authority. This is where his ministry we have the picture of the reuniting of the Trinity in this moment for him to be equipped for ministry from this point forward. In chapter 4, immediately he's led into the desert to be tempted. And this parallels the 40 days in the desert, parallels the 40 years of Israel in their wanderings. And unlike Israel, Jesus remains sinless. You see, he remains sinless. Again, proving his qualifications for messiahship. Israel came out of Egypt and entered into the wilderness through the parted waters of the Red Sea. And that must have been an awesome sight, to stand on the edge of that ocean, have it part in front of you and walk through on dry land. Whoa, right? Jesus comes out of the waters of baptism, right? So there's parallel symbolism there as well. While in the desert, Satan appeals to all of our common weaknesses, to our physical drives, to hunger, to desires of pride and possessions, and Jesus is sinless. He was tempted in every way, as we were, as we are, and found to be sinless, further proof of his divine nature and qualifications for messiahship. Then Jesus begins his ministry. He leaves Nazareth. He comes to Capernaum. And Capernaum becomes the place where he operates from from this point forward. From that time forward, Jesus begins to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Moving into chapters in 5 and 7, 5 through 7. Jesus delivers the first of his five major teachings, his five major discourses in the book of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount. And we spend considerable time in the Sermon on the Mount. This is where he gives us our first teaching about what it means to live out our lives as a Christian. How do we do that? What, what should our lives look like? Contrasting the self-righteousness of the Pharisees against the humility of a true disciple of Jesus. At the end of chapter 7, it's summed up with two verses. It says in verse 28, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished by his teaching. 
For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. See, they were used to hearing the self-edifying statements of the ruling class of Israel. No humility in those circles. But the word of Christ impacted his listeners in a significant way, unlike from what they were hearing. And that's why we hear they were astonished at his teaching. The key word here is authority. Authority. The words of Christ carried power and displayed authority. Further proof of who he was. His messiahship. All through the Gospels, at different times, we see variations of this statement throughout the Gospels. People were amazed. They were astonished. Deeply impacted by the power of his teaching and speech. So now in chapter 8, we move into a, new, into a new series of miracles. They're not new in that they hadn't taken place before. But here in this section of scripture, they're ordered in a specific way to begin to help us understand what the nature of Jesus' message, mission on earth is about. These three miracles are in an ordered sequence. First miracle. Remember, we talked about the leper. The leper is an outcast. An outcast. And what was the leper required to do as he walked through the town whenever he came into town, whenever he came into the presence of other people? What did that leper have to do? Unclean. He had to announce in front of himself, unclean. Can you imagine being that person? That every place you go, every time you make contact, in, the, in, the, in, the, in society, that was how you would, uh, had to announce yourself? Unclean. Unclean. Stay away from me. I'm not worthy to be close. And how did Jesus heal him? He did the scandalous thing. He touched an unclean person. The very act of touching him rendered him ceremonially unclean, according to Jewish law. Shocking. People noticed. Second miracle. He heals the servant, the valued servant, of who? A Roman centurion. A Gentile. A heathen. Not a Jew, right? A Gentile. The servant of a Gentile. The servant of a Roman centurion. And we know that Israel hated Rome. They despised Rome. They were under the boot of Rome. That's why they ground in this relationship. And Jesus heals the servant of a Roman. Whew. What's going on here? Third miracle we have in this sequence. Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. In the Roman, excuse me, in the Jewish tradition, it was forbidden for a man to touch a woman he was not married to. This was a serious affront to the culture. And yet that's how he healed Peter's mother-in-law. He touched her. So three in a row, every one of them, tearing down the established barriers of who can approach God. You see, he just wasn't just the God of Israel. When he announced, when John the Baptist announced him, he didn't say, here comes the Lamb of God who comes to save Israel. He didn't say that. What did he say? The world, all those 
Jesus was, was, was displaying and helping us understand that anyone who is willing to humble themselves before him is welcome, not just the Jews. So in chapter 8 here at verse 23, we arrive to the place where Matthew reveals to us, tells us about a new class of miracle. We're going to have an, a further unveiling of who Jesus is here. We've seen him heal many different people, all kinds of people, not just, not just those descended from Abraham in a blood sense. We now come to a place where we're going to have an unveiling of his further power. And I didn't put this in your notes. If you have a pencil, you may want to write this down. There's two parallel accounts of this event. Mark chapter 4, 35 through 41. Luke chapter 8, verses 22 through 25. When you gather this week in your small groups, you maybe want to review those together because the three together give us the full picture of what happens in this sequence of events. So Matthew has sent the stage for this particular event, for this crossing, back in verse 18. We read there, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders, he gave orders to go over to the other side. Mark's account of this event gives us additional information. Verses 35 and 36. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. So we get a little bit more information here. That just wasn't one boat that Jesus was in. There was a group of boats, a small flotilla of boats getting ready to make this passage across the Sea of Galilee. There's something we need to understand at this point, very telling about what we read and about what we don't read regarding this voyage. Jesus says, let us go to the other side. This is a statement. It's a directive. He said, let's go. He didn't ask permission. He didn't give a reason. He said, let's go to the other side. In giving this directive, notice that Jesus did not promise them a smooth, pleasant journey across the Sea of Galilee. No promise of a smooth, pleasurable trip at all. How often it does with us in our times when we're being tossed to and fro in times of trial. It's not a particularly pleasant experience, amen? Right? We are tested. Last week we talked, Zach led us in a discussion about the cost of discipleship. Right? What, do we, what did he talk about? What did we talk about last week? When we are born again by grace through repentance and faith in Christ and given the gift of the Holy Spirit, what is our charge? What is our charge? What does the Lord expect? First, to die to ourselves. Not an attractive proposition to the world, right? To die to yourself. Second, to pick up our cross. <coughs> Excuse me. To pick up our cross, this is our identifying with Jesus' suffering. We will suffer as we follow Jesus. All his true disciples will suffer as they follow him at some point. 
And third, we're told, follow me. Just like he told the disciples at this moment, let's go. He says to us, let's go. Let's walk with him. Does that sound particularly attractive? We're going to do uh, this banner across the highway to announce our Easter egg hunt and our services, right? Imagine if a half mile down the road, let's say right at the junction of Pier and, the, and, and, and Sepulveda Boulevard, PCH, kind of the hub of all the activity right in that Pier area, there's another banner stretched across the road, another banner. And, it, and it's an invitation, come, come join Hope Chapel and learn what Jesus has for you. That's one side of the banner. On the other side, the flip side, we print these three sentences in bold print. One, two, three. How long is the line waiting to get into Hope Chapel? Zero. Thank you. Is this what the world teaches? Is this what the world desires in their heart? No. No, it's not. That's the cost of discipleship. Difficulty is promised, not a pleasurable trip. Back in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, Jesus gives us a preview of what's coming as a Christian life. This is what we read. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account verse 12 this is key rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you rejoice and be glad those disciples that didn't want to give them the boat they weren't they weren't rejoicing at the prospect they had their agenda so here we find ourselves, it's nighttime. There's a group of boats crossing. It's been a long day of ministry. Jesus had felt the crowds pressing in on him, pressing in. He'd been healing. People were following him. The crowds were pressing in. It had been a long, arduous day of ministry. And Jesus was tired. He had reached the end of his human strength for that day. He said, let's go. I need room to breathe. I need respite. Let's cross to the other side. We need to remember that Jesus, after all, is human, right? Fully God, fully man, the miracle, the mystery of the incarnation. We can't fully get our minds around that. But we do know that he is fully God and fully man. He got tired. He got thirsty. He got hungry. He needed to rest. It was time to go. Verse 24, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. Little geography lesson here is helpful. If you look at a map, you locate Israel and you locate the Sea of Galilee. If you look straight north about 35 miles, you see Mount Hermon. There's a mountain there. This mountain rises to an elevation of 9,200 feet. In fact, you get snow there fairly regularly in the season. 9,200 feet. As you descend southward, rapid drops 
and elevation take place. There's ravines and valleys and gullies that lead down eventually to the Sea of Galilee. When you arrive at the Sea of Galilee, you are now 608 feet below sea level. That's a pretty steep drop from 9,200 to 600 feet below sea level. And then as the Jordan River runs south from the Sea of Galilee down to the Dead Sea, when you arrive at the Dead Sea, it's 1,400 feet below sea level. So do the math, 9,200 plus 14, that's a lot of drop in elevation. And here's what happens. In the north, in the cool air masses around the elevations up there, in the south, all the way down at the, at the Dead Sea, it's arid and there's dry, hot air. So what happens when cold, moist air rushes down and hot, dry air rushes up, they meet in the middle, what happens? Exactly. Not just a storm, but in this case, a great storm. A great storm. Storms are very common, but in this, in this text, there's a point being made. It is a great storm. This is an out-of-the-ordinary storm. See, the sailors in this area were familiar with the storms. They'd made their living on the Sea of Galilee fishing. So they had seen storms before, but not one like this. In fact, the word for storm in that statement of great storm, the word in Greek for storm in this passage of Scripture is seismos, shaking. That's where we get the word seismograph from in the English language. So this gives us an idea that this is such a magnitude of a storm, it felt like something was being shaken, right? If you look at the Greek word used in Mark and Luke, it's a different word, and that word means whirlwind. So put it together, what do you have? You have a horrific storm, out of the ordinary, something that would definitely strike fear, even to the hearts of experienced sailors who, who made their lives on that lake. So there we are. It's dark, powerful storm raging around the, the boats, and these boats, by the way, are only 30 feet long. They're not massive crafts. 30 feet. The waves are breaking over the top of the boats, filling them with water. These sailors have done everything they know how to do, and they are full of fear. They're desperate. So what do they do? Verse 24 tells us at the end of that verse, but he meaning Jesus, was asleep. Can you imagine this? The captain is in the boat. He's done everything he knows how to do. The passengers are hanging on for dear life. They're in fear of their lives, and the captain glances over. Jesus is asleep. Asleep. Could you and I sleep through that? What do you think? Not likely. Possible, but not likely. The captain had done everything he knew how to do. And in desperation, what does he do? What does he shout out? Save us, Lord. We are perishing. Has anyone here ever cried out that cry? Yes? I suspect that many of you who are not raising your hands have been in that place. If we, if we think about our lives... How many times have you come to a place where you cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, why me? Don't you care? 
Why me? Why am I afflicted the way I am? Why am I going through this trial? What are you doing, Lord? Don't you love me? Don't you care for me? Why are you letting me languish in this place? Many of us have been in that place. Many, this, this is my service. This is the service I come to for many years. I know many of you, and I know many of you right this very moment are in that place. I've been praying for you. You've been praying for me. So this is our reality. This is what we need to deal with. Pure desperation is what we see here. And you know you're in trouble if you're in that boat. You definitely know you're in trouble if the captain of the boat turns to Jesus, who is an ex-carpenter, and asks him for advice. Right? Is that going to instill confidence in you and the captain of the boat? Turning to a carpenter, saying, hey, what do I do here? I've done everything I know how to do. No. But they did know that Jesus had healed. They saw his power in healing. And I'm sure they were hoping that the very man who had healed perhaps could do something to help them in this moment. They weren't sure. They cried out in desperation. They cried out in desperation. If you read all three accounts of all three sections of Scripture in, in Matthew, Luke, and Mark, and you take the sum total of all the declarations of them at this point in time, they would sound something like this. Master, Master, save. Don't you care? We are perishing. We're drowning out here. Wake up. Save us. They had nowhere else to turn. They'd run out of everything they knew how to do. And they were crying out to the man who had healed in front of them, help us, help us. They were hoping that he could. But in this particular situation, God had them in the exact place where he wanted them. You see, just like us. In our trials and tribulations, God has you exactly where he wants you to be. None of this is an accident. Amen? Amen. Sometimes God has to bring us to places of desperation and despair to do the work in us that he needs to do. They had run out of human solutions. They had run out of their own answers. They wanted a divine answer, and that was their hope. Lord, help us. So many of us have been in that place. We have faced severe trials, unexpected circumstances, unforeseen dilemmas. We have cried out at some point, God, don't you care? Little faith. It's a quite natural human response when you think about it. Quite natural. But in these moments, God wants us to remember what he has promised us. Hebrews 13.5 Keep your life free from the love of money and be content keyword content with what you have. For he has said I might leave you and you know if I'm not having a good day I might leave you high and dry. Oh no, that's not what he said. Sorry. He said I will never leave you I will never forsake you. That is a promise of God 
we have to hang on to for all your worth. Hold on to it. Hold on to it. Ephesians 4, verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You see, if God has saved you, if he has given you the gift of faith, repentance, and the Holy Spirit, you have been sealed for the day of redemption. There is no doubt. He will bring you through in our weakness, in our failures. He, by the power of the Holy Spirit, will bring us through. Philippians 1.6, one of my favorite scriptures, an early memory verse that I, years ago when I was taking one of the HCMI classes, the class focused on the book of Philippians for the study. Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, that he who began the good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. Can I hear a hallelujah? That's not a maybe. That word will bring it to conclusion. That's important for us to hold on to. It's not my strength that will get me there. I don't get myself to the other side of the lake. God, in his mercy and his grace, will bring me safely to the other side. Praise God. Praise the Lord. You see, our Lord and Savior has promised us, just like he promised those that entered the boat, let's go across to the other side. That was a statement of fact, not a question, not a supposition, a statement of fact. He would deliver them to the other side. Those of us who belong to the Lord, walking with him, we will experience the same thing. He will deliver us to the other side. He will. Verse 26. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. In Mark's account of verse 40, Something a little different, a little added information. Verse 40 says, he said to them, again, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? So the references here are similar. Small faith, no faith. As you look at the situation, you have to ask yourself, what kind of question is this? Are you afraid? They are in a fear of their lives. If I was in that boat, I'd be afraid. It's a natural response. They're hanging on for dear life. And Jesus says, why are you afraid? Are you kidding me? Look around you, Jesus. It's dark. It's raging. We're about ready to drown. That's why I'm afraid. Why are you fearful? The word in Greek for fearful refers to cowardly. Think about that, cowardly. They had not come to the place yet where they understood who he was and what he could do for certain. So what Jesus was really saying is, do you, don't you believe in me and my love and my power? These are the two key things. If you believe in God's love and God's power, you can weather any storm, any storm. Number one, you know God cares for you. Number two, you know that he can handle any situation 
right? Any situation. God loves me. God loves us. He has the power to deliver us. All we need to know are the, is that God loves us. He cares for us. And Eddie says, oh, you of little faith. They were not demonstrating true belief in him. Back in chapter 4, verses 23 and 24 of Matthew's gospel, we read, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. This is why he's asking, why are you afraid? He had just displayed numerous miracles, miraculous healings. People's lives were changed and transformed, and they were afraid. Jesus was, in effect, saying to them, what do you need to see in order to trust in me? And we are just like those disciples. How often do we speak of the great things that God has done around us in our congregation and friends? We hear glorious testimonies of the power of God saving this person or getting another person through a trial, physical problems, financial issues. We hear all these stories. When we hear them, we share them, we reverse them together. What do we say? Praise God. Praise God. He is an awesome God. We celebrate this together as we hear these testimonies. God is powerful, his wonders to perform. But when the crisis gets dead center zeroed on you in, in a moment of time, what do we do? We begin to shrink down. Our natural tendency is to not revel in what God does, but to allow our flesh to become fearful. The same fear that these people who had been with him and watched these miracles happen, they lapsed into instantaneously. See, this is a picture of who we are. This is our challenge as Christians to remember who he is and what he has done and that he is faithful. Amen? God is faithful. So despite all their doubt, all their fears, all their weaknesses, what does Jesus do? Does he turn his back on them and say, oh man, you guys, how often do I have to save you? How many times do I have to heal and exhort is that what he did? No. This boat is pitching and yawing. It's ready to be flipped over. Right? They, they feel they are in mortal danger. And Jesus stands up in that boat. Can you imagine trying to stand in that boat to begin with? In this horrible storm? He stands up. He stands up and says, and rebukes the wind and the sea. And there was a great calm. In the King James Version, Mark 4.39, it says, And he arose, rebuked the wind, and he said to the sea, Peace, be still. What a beautiful picture. Christ standing up in the middle of this raging storm, commanding the forces of nature, Peace, be still. 
and the wind and the waves ceased immediately, just like that. Just as fast as that storm had arose, it became calm. At the command of his word, the storm ended right there in that very moment. There was no delay, just like when he spoke to Lazarus. Lazarus, come forth. Is he waiting? No. Out comes Lazarus at the command of the words of Christ. He is God. He is God. The raging tempest was transformed into a sea of glass. Can you imagine being in that boat? Being transformed from fear of losing your life in an instant to a sea of perfect glass. Woo! Man, I don't think you'd forget that. Would you forget that? Would you forget that experience? No. It would mark you the rest of your life. And God has marked us, right? When we understand what we've been delivered from, it marks you. Despite all their doubt, despite all their fears, he saves them. He saves the day. Verse 27. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? We get a little better insight into their reaction in Mark's version, verse 41, Mark 4, 41. And they were filled with great fear. See, they were already in a fearful place. They were in fear of their lives. That was the reality of the moment. But Mark tells us, and they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? You see, they began... They came to a place being in fear of their lives. Everything around them was in jeopardy. It ends, they are in great fear because they had just witnessed the majesty of God in their presence. They had just, man, they had just witnessed the divine power of Jesus Christ in the moment. They were witnesses to it. And they went from fear of their lives into great fear. They were awestruck. They were overcome with the power that they saw Jesus demonstrate. This new dimension of who Jesus was was revealed to them. When we read of man's encounter with God or with Christ, there's a common denominator against every one of them. Right? What happened when when Isaiah, in his vision of the temple, he came into the presence of the Lord, what did he do? Face first in the dirt. Can't stand. He's in the presence and the holiness of, the God, of God. He was unmasked. His humanness, his sinfulness. In fact, he says, remember, I am a man of sinful lips from a people of sinful lips. When we stand in the presence of God, who we are is revealed instantaneously. Daniel, on the, river, on the banks of the great river, as he has the vision of what's to come. The Messiah appears in front of him in all his divine splendor. What does Daniel do? Face first in the dirt. 
right? The angel comes and touches him so he can stand. They witnessed this same divine power. That was the intensity of what they had just seen, and that's why they had great fear. God started this storm. God ended the storm. Amen? So as we come to the conclusion of the text here, what do we need to take away? What would be helpful for us to take away? I've given you three things in your study notes that you can discuss in your groups this coming week. Here's number one. Jesus has called us to go with him. Amen? Has Jesus called us? Yes, the power of the gospel message. When you hear it, your eyes are opened. Those that are predestined to be saved hear that message, the message of truth, and they come. But when we come, there's no promise of a safe, quiet, peaceful journey, right? In fact, earlier we read, we will have trouble. Two, when the great storms come to us, tossing us to and fro, he wants us to trust in him. Not be fearful. Not be fearful, but trust in him. Three, Jesus will deliver us safely to our destination. Amen? Do we have that promise? Yes? Do we have that promise? Hold on to that. Hold on to the promise. And lastly, Maybe even more importantly, this raises a question, a question for each of us, every one of you here this morning to consider. The question is, are you in the boat? Are you in the boat? Are you in the boat? Yes. Is he the Lord of your life? Yes. Have you responded to his call to follow him? Yes. yes. Have you said yes, Lord, and gotten in the boat? Now, we have a packed house this morning, praise God. And I know with 350 people sitting here, somebody in this room is not in the boat. Somebody here is not in the boat. And I want to plead with you right now. If God has spoken to you through this message, if you've heard the truth of his call on your life, and you have been in the past like one of those disciples who were standing on, on the shore and said, not yet, Lord. i got to do this. i got to do that. I hear you. I understand you. But eh, not right this minute. I want to encourage you to come now. If you are not in the boat you have no promise of safety and security. Your soul, your very soul is in jeopardy. Your spiritual life hangs in the balance. You see, God does not promise you another day. If you have heard this message and you have said, wait, Lord, I have some things to do, you are not promised another day. You are not. None of us are. Our lives, the Bible tells us, is like a vapor. It's like steam coming off of coffee disappears quickly. In the scheme of eternity, your life, my life is like the end of my finger, my little finger. 
So don't toy with your spiritual life. Don't take that chance. I'm begging you, don't do it. You are in mortal danger. You are in danger of losing your very soul. So this morning, I'm just pleading with you. I'm pleading with you. Don't walk out those doors this morning if you're not in the boat. Don't do it. After our worship time, the elders will be here. I will be here. If you're struggling with your faith, if you're struggling, come forward and have the elders pray for you. If you know in your heart that you have not got in that boat, come forward. Today is the day of salvation. Today, seek the Lord while his mercy may be found. You see, his mercy is available today, right now. When you stand before him in the day of judgment, if you are not in that boat, there is no mercy for you. You will pay for your sin with your own life, with your own blood. But if you have repented and trusted in him, you will stand before God in mercy and grace and the righteousness of Jesus Christ saves us. Hallelujah. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we are, Father, we are so grateful that you have chosen us, that you have made your gospel message clear. And for the great promises we have, Lord, you promise us that anyone, anyone, Lord, Jew, Gentile, clean, unclean, all those who will come and humble themselves, Father, before you, that you will lift them up. If anyone here today, Lord, is not on that boat, Father, please, by the power of your Holy Spirit, get them out of their seats and have them come forward.